You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode 57. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. So in the last episode, we talked about perimenopause and PMS, the, the distinctions and the difference. Uh, and this one, we're going to talk about perimenopause and menopause, the difference and the distinctions. Uh, I know that you and I both, we talk to women all the time, and a lot of them do think their doctors even tell them that they're in menopause, but technically they're, you know, they're really not. So we're going to kind of touch on some of those uh, some of them are very subtle differences. Some of them are very, you know, very uh, distinct differences. And I think this is a, a good topic to talk about. Absolutely, because perimenopause, as you know, it states, is says before menopause, but it's not really that simple because there are distinctions between menopause and perimenopause. And I think a lot of women aren't really sure what phase they're in, and a lot of their doctors don't seem to know what phase they're in. And you might be thinking, well what's the point? Why do we need to know anyway? If somebody is having some particular symptoms that they want to alleviate, you need to know, you know, if they're in perimenopause, if they're menopausal, because doing, treating a perimenopausal female with menopausal treatments can actually make it worse, if not actually be kind of a a risk factor. Yeah, right. So you kind of have to know kind of what you're dealing with. Uh, Now, granted, in medicine, they're always looking for a diagnosis, right? There's always a diagnosis code, ICD-10 codes. Uh, So you go into the doctor and they diagnose you with something. With perimenopause, there isn't a diagnosis for perimenopause. So it's either this huge expanse uh, you know, from a you know, lifetime perspective, all the way from PMS, which could be uh, from as young as a woman in her teens, all the way up to a woman in her mid fifties, you go from PMS to menopause and that's it. Now, what would you say just in general, like the, the length of perimenopause, how long do you think that typically lasts for a woman? Oh, it can last quite a long time. I've seen women in their, you know, mid thirties, um, have you know going through perimenopause even up to the late 40s you'll see them starting to have menopause so it's really a big broad expanse typically most of the time perimenopause starts in your mid 40s but like i said i've seen people in their 30s and then same with menopause is menopause is supposed to start at you know the average age is 51.5 but i've seen women as early as their early 40s actually start to go through menopause so it does overlap a little bit and they and some of the distinction we want to make here is to let you understand where you're at so that you can kind of move forward and with working with your doctor or working on your own to help alleviate the symptoms. Yeah, right, because there's a lot of things that are going on with a woman's body in this time frame. Like you said, from the late 30s to the early 50s, that's almost, you know, close to 15 years. Uh, give or take, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years where a woman, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, we deal with these women all the time. So we know that they're not feeling very well, but because they don't fit into a very classic diagnosis as, you know, PMS, PMDD, menopause, and even them, the diagnosis for those and the treatment for those, we don't really agree with a lot of the conventional treatments. That's why we're doing this anyways. Uh, it really puts women in this uh, really tough spot and they really have a hard time finding help. 
alleviating some of their symptoms. They go to the endocrinologist or even their gynecologist that should know how to deal with hormones. And it doesn't really ever quite work out that way because technically it's not whatever, whatever they're experiencing, whatever symptoms they have, which we'll go through some of those in a minute. Uh, you know, there's no real diagnosis for that except for those symptoms. And that, that's why the treatment ends up kind of falling off. And women will ask, well, is there any kind of tests that I can do to see if I'm in perimenopause or if I'm in menopause? And that's a little bit elusive as well, because it's hard to interpret those tests, even if you do them. Like, for example, this is actually a pretty common scenario, but I recently had a new patient, Kim, and you know, we were, we were talking and she said, I've been in menopause since my early forties. My doctor told me I went into menopause, you know, a good, you know, eight years ago. So she was saying she went into menopause at 41 and here she is at 49 and I started talking to her a little bit, and um, she's having a regular period every single month. It's not the same as it used to be 15 years ago, but she's having a regular period. And then I asked her, well, why did they say that you're in menopause? And they said, well, they did a blood test, and it showed that I was in menopause and that my hormones were really low. And it turned out, even though that was years ago, that she did her blood test on her period when she was on her period, which just to let you know, if when you're on your period, your hormones, your estrogen and progesterone are zero because that's where they're supposed to be when you're on your period. So there was a little bit of some inconsistencies with that. And then when I asked her, well, have you been treated for your quote unquote menopause diagnosis? She said, yeah, they tried to give me estrogen and I immediately gained, I think she said it was like 12 or 15 pounds and felt terrible and went right off of that which is why you would never want to, you know, give a perimenopausal female estrogen because she probably doesn't need it. Yeah, right. Now there's some, we're, you know, we're not talking in absolutes here, but you know, there's, you know, there's time and place for lots of different things. That's why as the practitioner, you need to have the right information. Uh, and a lot of times it isn't even lab testing, right? It's more about the patient's uh, symptom picture and what's going on. Like you just said, the very classic thing, if she's having a regular period, she's not at menopause yet. If she's even having a sporadic period every three months, or whatever, she's technically still not in menopause yet either. Now that transition is kind of speeding up. She's probably closer to menopause than she is perimenopause, but sometimes that's where they become an estrogen candidate. Another trend, you know, just from a treatment perspective uh, that we see also, and this is just to kind of make the distinction between the different, you know, how you're going to uh, address a perimenopausal woman versus a menopausal woman. What we see a lot is you can't give them, a lot of doctors know, obviously you can't give a menstruating female estrogen. Uh, so we see a lot of women that are in this, you know, this, you know, perimenopausal window. They, a lot of doctors will give them, because one of their complaints, of course, is low libido. So a doctor will give them testosterone right off the bat. We don't really agree with that being kind of the first line of, of treatment. Usually it makes them feel worse. It doesn't really help them feel any better. Oh, exactly. Because, you know, t too much testosterone can cause um, acne. It can cause hair loss. It can cause you to feel testy. But one, I think some of the rationale behind that is testosterone and estrogen or estradiol looks almost exactly the same in chemical structure. So testosterone can convert to estrogen, which I think you know, it's not a good idea with when you're looking at a perimenopausal female because you don't want to encourage that estrogen status because that is the time in your mid forties when your perimenopausal is that's the most common time that a female is going to have a hysterectomy, you know, removal of the uterus. And that's because like you had mentioned, you're having those regular periods, but those periods aren't the same. They can be very heavy. They can be very long. They can be a lot of spotting. There can be more cramping. That's usually the time that a female will find out, Hey, you've got active fibroids because in perimenopause is when the fibroids become active and then they just go and remove the uterus. 
Yeah, right. I, I think I, I just this week alone, I think I just talked to three women that are kind of in their you know mid 40s and they were all going through that exact same situation, right? Which is a, obviously a very common problem. They're still menstruating. So that tells you right off the bat that their estrogen level is still sufficient. Um, but now, you know, they just noticed that their cycles were completely uh, had kind of taken it up a notch, right? Their bleeding was excessive. It was all the time. It was very unusual. So of course it gets their attention. It kind of makes them a little nervous. But I, you know, I think that the, the, the patient and their gynecologist don't even realize that that's actually kind of a normal transition, that that's something that happens in perimenopause. Now, if you're, uh, you know, you do have a fibroid or as they say, kind of estrogen dominance, sort of, so to speak, uh, it can exacerbate some of those things. But we've talked about before in the past, a lot of that in the epitome or the, the, uh, you know, the. Uh, the, what the distinction about perimenopause is when the the progesterone levels really start to decline rapidly when you start to see some of that. And you know, not to you know not to say don't have a hysterectomy. In some cases, women are thrilled that they had a hysterectomy or they had a uterine ablation to prevent those periods from being so awful. I mean, I've heard so many stories. I'm sure all you listeners have too about you know, bleeding through your pants at dinner or having to grab a sweatshirt and wrap it around your waist. I mean, you feel like you're 13 all over again, or you're anemic because your periods are so heavy. You know, there are some other options to balance those hormones to try to avoid a hysterectomy. But at the same time, when you do take out the uterus, you're correcting those periods, sure. But at the same time, there's still other symptoms in perimenopause that don't go away when you take that uterus out. Yeah, right. Uh, and that, uh, and believe me, like I said, there's some situations where the hysterectomy, you know, as you say, is per- perfectly, uh, and maybe in some ways an ideal thing, right? They've exhausted some other things, but a lot of times I think from a gyneco- gynecological perspective, they jump to that a little bit too quickly. You know, there's some other things that can be done when you understand hormonally what's going on. Not to say that a gynecologist doesn't understand what's going on. They certainly do. They went to medical school and they're very smart people. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, you know, we don't agree giving a woman in her late 40s birth control if that doesn't work then you know the other option is they usually recommend you know like you said either an ablation or or a hysterectomy at that point and we like to intervene in there and you know kind of be you know part of that process if possible and maybe use the surgical surgical procedure as kind of a you know as a a last option so to speak if we're not able to have some success because sometimes you just don't sometimes you you know if there is fibroids and they're significant enough sometimes you can't you know you can't fix it. Uh, It can be a little bit challenging. So now, like you said, the only way for them to get relief is from having the procedure. Exactly. And, and another distinction that you'll see between, you know, menopause and perimenopause is of course those hot flashes. So, um, and this can be a little bit of a gray area too, but absolutely in menopause, you're going to have hot flashes during the day and the night sweats at night, depending on the individual, their genetics, their lifestyle, they could be really, really bad, or it could be really, really minor. So definitely in menopause, you have the hot flashes and the night sweats. But what's interesting in perimenopause, you don't have the daytime hot flashes. Not the, not the hot flashes during the day, but in perimenopause, you can have night sweats, which can be really extreme seven to 10 days before your period. But of course, once you get your period, those night sweats go away. Yeah, right. Which is one of those, you know, timing things that, you know, that 
really helps you and I, when we're talking to a patient, really helps us kind of hone in on where these problems are showing up. Uh, when you make that, you know, when you're finally in menopause, uh, you know, or you know, you're closer to that end of the spectrum, you know, those symptoms that you're experiencing temperature-wise tend to be kind of all month, or at least they show up all, you know, all the time, as opposed to being uh, in a very, you know, in a very, at least more frequent anyways, in that defined amount of time. Uh, now, uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, testing uh, because I think that uh, testing is, um, again, confusing um, both to the patient and to the practitioner unless you know kind of what you're looking for. Uh, so why don't we uh, touch on a couple of things there that maybe would be good to know. What you should be testing, what you should be looking at, and some of the different uh, the differences and the subtleties that are, you know, that we can um, that you know you can find. Well, like we talked about in the last podcast, is you know there's different ways to test for your hormones. There's salivary testing, there's uh, urine testing, and then there you know typically probably the most common is blood testing because a lot of times if doctors are ordering tests, if your insurance is going to cover it, they're not usually going to cover a salivary or a urine test that so they normally do blood. But in a perimenopausal female and you're still cycling and your hormones might not be where they used to be, you know, several years ago, you're still going to be having hormonal changes throughout your cycle that doing a blood test isn't always, you know, it's one second, one minute of the day. And like I mentioned about Kim, you know, she had her blood test when she was on her period and then her estrogen and progesterone looked low. So they immediately said, hey, you're in menopause. So you really have to do a little bit of timing on when you're gonna do the blood test, but at the same time, if your periods aren't regular, it's hard to time it. Yeah, right, how do you, if you're having sporadic, you know, a sporadic cycle or long cycles, how do you know what day you're on, right? Usually day one of bleeding, or the first day of menstruation is the, is day one. Okay, so then you know you go until the period starts again, and that's how long your cycle is. That could change every month. Uh, it could start to become very you know unpredictable. Therefore, you can't you can't really figure out any timing. So now most of the time, when we have a woman go to the lab, you know to try to figure some of these things out um, to do blood work, we're having her either go in on day 12 or day 20. Um, that way, it gives us uh, day 12 is usually the peak of estrogen. That's the kind of the the peak of the follicular phase, and day 20 gynecologists say day 21 we might give them a range you know day uh, 11 through 13 or day 18 to 21 uh, that way you know day day 20 is the peak of progesterone which is the luteal phase um, so now once you have either of those kind of landmarks now you get a better idea where those hormone levels should be given that, that they have a regular cycle now some of you might be asking what happens if I had that hysterectomy and I don't have a uterus? When am I supposed to go do my blood work then? And, you know, that, that can seem a little bit confusing, but, you know, we've done it enough that we can really kind of tell when, I, when someone's had a hysterectomy, I know, you know, where they are in the cycle when I look at their blood work, you know, looking at that estrogen and that progesterone. And in particular, I like to do a follicle-stimulating hormone or an FSH, which is a signal from the brain, your pituitary, which monitors your overall ovarian status. So if somebody's ovaries are starting to drop in function, like they would in perimenopause, then you'll see that follicle-stimulating hormone increase. Now, if somebody's in menopause or they had the ovaries out, so there is no hormones coming from that those ovaries, the estrogen and progesterone, then you see that FSH really high. So that's where there's a little bit of confusion with the lab interpretation and then with the doctors interpreting because the reference ranges for a follicle stimulating hormone are a little bit off. Like for example, 
an ep- so a woman that has, you know, perfectly functioning ovaries, you know, she's 28 years old, everything's working great, is that FSH might be anywhere under nine, you know, two, usually two to five, which is perfect because, you know, those ovaries are working great. But if somebody is in menopause, no hormones or no ovaries, like they had their ovaries out, then the FSH would be really high, somewhere over 80. So this is where it gets a little gray is because somebody in perimenopause, their FSH could be anywhere from 19, usually I see it from 19 to 45. We're on the reference ranges of like Quest or LabCorp, that really says that they're, perimen- or they're postmenopausal, but they're not. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that is, um, again, you have to look at a lot of lab work and really kind of understand that because I think those kinds of, mis- you know, um, those kind of mistakes and those things really do kind of happen quite often. Uh, and that's where, you know, doctors kind of just throw up their hands. They're not really sure what to do because the numbers, you know, without knowing some of those things. And FSH, are, I, I think, is a very commonly run test. But again, if you don't know the timing, you don't know where they are, you know, there's lots of different things that help to kind of interpret that. Uh, so you know, you know, really what's you know what's going on, and then that can help dictate treatment and what you're going to do for them. Uh, now, any other lab findings that would be interesting to point out? I'm, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. Well, you know, with the labs, with like I said, I do think the symptoms probably help you d- differentiate a little bit better if somebody's in menopause or perimenopause. But I do think the follicle-stimming hormone, the estrogen, the progesterone, those are probably the three main ones. You could go on and do a little bit with the adrenals, like the DHEA sulfate or the pregnenolone. You could, um, or you you know also do that testosterone, like you talked about doing testosterone replacement. So if somebody's taking testosterone, you want to make sure you test it, that it's not too high. But I do think, you know, the the blood tests are probably more common, but now the urine test and the saliva test, probably the saliva test isn't quite as common as it used to be, but the urine tests are taking over quite a bit. But that's kind of the same thing too, is if you're cycling and you do that, that dried urine test, it's still looking at, you know, it's not looking at your overall cycle, whether it's a 25-day cycle, a 35-day cycle, or a 28-day cycle. Yeah, with the uh, with the Dutch test, they usually recommend that you do the test on day 19. Um, so if you have a regular cycle, then you can do it on day 19. If your cycle is not regular, then how do you figure out where day 19 is? It makes it very challenging. Uh, you know, but uh, the one thing about the 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 advantages of doing the Dutch test, which is very popular right now, dried urine testing. The company is out of, I think, McKinleyville or McKinley, Oregon or something. Uh, it's not not too far from us, you know, pretty much right down the road. Um, the part of that testing that is different than blood testing is it does give you the, you know, the uh, the cortisol, uh, you know, pattern. You know, so you're doing four different samples and you get some of those metabolites. When we're doing blood testing, like you said, it's one second in one day. We would like to look at DHA sulfate as a way to kind of infer what's going on with with cortisol because. And that perimenopausal woman, you can't really tell sometimes by their symptoms if their DHA and testosterone is high or low. A lot of times they'll say, you know, they have all the classic symptoms. They, you know, they're irritable, they're tired, they're gaining weight, they have no libido, and you'd expect maybe that their testosterone would be low or their DHA would be low, and then now it's on the high side, right? And they still have no libido, right? So some of the, sometimes when you think one thing is going to happen, the labs will tell you something completely different. Uh, that's why doing the labs. I think is very necessary, uh, but sometimes you don't get the you know you don't really get the confirmation that you're looking for. Sometimes it's ex- almost exactly the opposite. Or if you're treating, then you do you know you can have the before labs and the after labs. So I do I do think lab testing is important, but then also you know 
you're not numbers on a piece of paper is getting your subjective information on what are your symptoms. Like if you're, if you're having a regular period and you're, and you're getting night sweats, you know, seven to 10 days before your period. Cause I get this all the time, you know, doc, I think I'm in menopause because I'm having night sweats, but then we break it down and it's really just a few days before their period, maybe one day into their period. And then we realize, no, that's really more about their, you know, perimenopause. Same with them, um, which is really, really interesting to kind of differentiate too, is, is memory. So in menopause, when that estrogen drops, because we have so many receptors in our brain for um, estrogen, is you'll have that trouble with recall. Like it's in your brain, but if you ask me a question, just give me like one to two minutes, it'll come out, but I can't pull it out of my brain. It's that memory recall. Where in perimenopause, it's more about the short-term memory. Like don't forget to grab the dry cleaning on your way home and you totally forget because that short-term memory goes in one ear and out. You can kind of see a little bit of distinctions between perimenopause and menopause with that. Yeah, right. Now, some of those things are, like I said, are very subjective, right? They're hard to, you can't find the answers to those types of things on a lab test. And that's kind of what we're talking about. The lab testing is still very important because once you're providing some kind of treatment, you can see, like you said, the before and afters, you can see the changes, you can see the hormone numbers. Like for example, if you, if a woman's FSH level is a little bit higher, you know, let's say 75, close to hundred, you give her some estrogen, that FSH level is going to come down a little bit. Okay? If we do rhythmic dosing, that number is going to come down quite a bit, uh, you know, where in a perimenopausal woman, you might be looking at some different parameters. You, you know, that might not be necessary because she's still having a regular cycle. Okay. Now, one other thing that I, I think starts to happen in perimenopause and extends into menopause is of course, weight gain. Okay. Now we're going to talk more about that later because this is one of the, you know, again, as this starts to happen for a woman, like you said, in the early to mid forties, that's the thing we hear about all the time. Like they have this midsection they never used to have before, you know, this stubborn, you know, area around the, uh, around the abdomen that they just can't, no matter what they do, they just can't seem to get rid of it. Exactly. That's probably one of the, like I said, one of the most common complaints is when you hit perimenopause, it's like an extra eight to 10 pounds, just automatically overnight just appears. And no matter what you do, you can't lose it or you work really hard to lose a little bit. And then you have maybe Sunday dinner and then it's right back the next day. So definitely the weight gain starts in that perimenopause, but it does seem to extend into menopause. So there's not really a differentiation between saying, you know, I wish you could say, Hey, in menopause, it goes away and you lose the weight. It doesn't. It's definitely something that's hormonal between both of them. Yeah, right. So those there's some similarities there. And definitely, I mean, I don't think weight gain in perimenopause or menopause, like you said, is any different. It's just something that happens. And it almost becomes kind of worse as you get into menopause. As those female hormones continue to decline, um, proportionally, you end up having more cortisol and less of the female hormones. The female hormones, just like for men, testosterone is kind of like the buffer against the stressful 21st century. When you lose that buffer, the female hormones are declining. Um, that's what begins to happen in perimenopause. Now, all of a sudden, now your body is more responsive to the uh, the kind of damaging cortisol. Cortisol is one of those hormones we can't live without. We need it. We have to have it. Uh, we can't survive without it. But you know, when it kind of goes a little crazy, because you know, we talk to these women all the time, and they're they're working, they're taking care of the family, they're taking care of the kids, they're doing all these things. They're you know, they're kind of they're kind of doing it all, and their bodies are kind of letting them down a little bit. Their bodies are not cooperating operating the way that they used to. And speaking of cortisol, that also tends to cause interference with sleeping. So with perimenopause, when that cortisol is coming up, it has a tendency to come up at night. 
So like Dr. Mackey was talking about that Dutch test, I, you know, with the dried urine, it's really cool because you can follow someone's cortisol levels through that 24 hour period. Cause in perimenopause, what ends up happening is your cortisol comes up at night. It's not supposed to come up at night. It's supposed to be low at night so that you can sleep all night. So if that cortisol comes up in the middle of the night, that's really classic perimenopause symptom is I can fall asleep really easy, but I can't stay asleep. I either wake up and I'm up for an hour and a half, two hours, or I just wake up all night long. You don't see that as commonly in menopause unless it's the night sweats. You know, I'm getting hot flashes at night, so I can't sleep at night because I'm having these hot flashes. Where in perimenopause, it's really just I fall asleep for two to four hours and then I'm up. Yeah, right. And that's, uh, you know, honestly, I think that that what, what, what's happening there is what they call a reversed diurnal curve or a flipped curve. You have more cortisol at night, less in the morning. Uh, so now your sleep is completely disrupted. You wake up in the morning, you're completely tired all day long. Uh, and then that cycle just continues because you're busy. You got lots of things to do. Uh, and then it kind of just gets stuck that way. And really, there's not a lot of uh, medications or treatments, conventional treatments that you can do for something like that. Because you know, the, we're not really fans of uh, sleeping pills. We're not fans of, uh, you know, an, of benzodiazepines like Xanax or any of those kinds of things. Uh, and certainly not birth control. Uh, after that, what other options does a doctor have? They don't really have a lot of things to be able to flip that curve back around, raise it in the morning, lower it at night. Uh, we use some things, you know, supplementation wise, and even some prescriptions that do a pretty good job of starting to kind of reverse that situation. Uh, and now, you know, and now a woman is actually finally able to sleep and get some rest and everything kind of trickles off that sleep tree, right? They get more energy. They're able to lose some weight. They're able to, you know, they're able to feel better on a regular basis. Uh, and then as they go into menopause, their transition will be a little bit you know, less hectic or chaotic as they, as they transition. That's definitely the goal is to, you know, work with those hormones, whether it's like you said, prescriptions or medications or supplementation or especially lifestyle and supplementation. Love that to make that menopause a nice, graceful transition. Yeah. Uh, now, I think we uh, we covered uh, the main points that we wanted to discuss. Is there anything else, Dr. Davidson, that you know we should uh, let everybody know? I guess, you know, one quick other distinction, you know, there's the mood. So in perimenopause, you're way more irritable than menopause because I think that has to do with that cortisol and that drop in the higher cortisol at night and that drop in progesterone. So definitely irritable, even at the most minor offenses. So that's totally normal if you're in perimenopause. So, you know, you don't get a free ticket, but at least, you know, be gentle with yourself is that irritability, um, the, the vaginal pain with intercourse, that's not really a typical with perimenopause. Perimenopause, the libido, yeah, sure is run away, but when things get rocking and rolling, it's just fine. Where in menopause, you know, with that lack of estrogen, those little vaginal cells can get pretty fragile and you can have a little bit of that atrophy or dryness or pain with intercourse. So I'd say those would be the other kind of distinctions when you're kind of looking at the differences of perimenopause versus menopause. Right. Okay. Uh, so I think this is, uh, I think this is a good kind of overview or kind of helping women figure out, you know, kind of where they are. I mean, some of it's fairly easy, right? Depending just on age alone, the closer you are to 51 and a half, the closer you are to menopause, you know, but you and I know over the years, we've had plenty of women that are in their mid fifties and they're still cycling regularly. Oh yeah. They're like a superstar, you know, like, like I, I always tell them, I get, you've got like ovaries that are like, you know, rock stars. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think ultimately, I think we would both agree that that's actually a really good thing. In some oh, ways, yeah. the longer, the better they're able to maintain those hormones. You know, that's great. You know, that's, that's the, you know, that's, that's perfect uh, because it staves off all those things 
things. And usually they're, those are the women that their transitions are usually pretty, you know, pretty good because the hormone that, that cycling capability has lasted as long as possible. I think that's really good. So uh, I think this wraps it up for this episode. Uh, if you have any questions, you can certainly let it uh, reach out, um, post a, uh, leave a comment below. You can send us an email at help at progressorhealth.com. Uh, otherwise, until next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.